invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. As we're coming uh, very nearly to the end, Luke 24, uh, we come to a final coming to faith story this morning. If you remember, uh, Luke has been telling a series of coming to faith stories. Uh, the, the thief on the cross comes to faith. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, comes to a public profession of faith. The Roman centurion uh, professes his faith, that this was the Son of God. The women at the tomb, uh, and now we're going to, last time we saw the two disciples on the road to Emmaus coming to a a deep, true faith in Christ, and now the same is going to happen for the disciples. And if you remember, the reason Luke is having all these coming to faith stories is because he wants Theophilus to come to faith. Uh, He is... uh, Uh, very intent in um, explaining these things so that Theophilus can have certainty, that certainty of of faith, of really knowing Christ and trusting Christ, committing himself to Christ. And so let's look together at Luke 24. We're going to begin reading verse 36, and we'll read through verse uh, 49, excuse me. This is uh, taking place uh, uh, on Easter Sunday in the uh, the evening, and uh, Jesus Christ now, for the first time, reveals himself to his disciples. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. God in heaven, we are often slow of heart to believe, and Lord, this morning none of us has the faith that we wish we had, a faith that is just abounding with hope and joy and peace. And so we ask, Lord, you would lead us to that today as uh, the Spirit now takes this word and speaks it to our hearts. I pray, Lord, your blessing for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, uh, I had the privilege of of being, (coughs) excuse me, in um, Willow Grove near Philadelphia for the um, home missions board meetings, and it's a joy to see what's going on there. John Shaw doing a wonderful job of, of leading uh, that um, ministry of the OPC, 
and 15 new uh, church plants, hopefully this coming year, at least requests uh, for, for funds, so that's exciting. But one of, the, one of the joys of going there is just meeting the guys and, and talking to them. I was able to sit down with uh, Chris Hartshorn, you might remember him, he was at our servants retreat uh, two years back, and Eric Watkins, who spoke at our family camp, I think he's going to speak this summer again. Well, Eric has just written a book on, <coughs> on preaching. <coughs> And we were talking about the idea of sermon application. I did some studying on that on a sabbatical. Uh, and the, the, just thinking about how do we really help people um, sense the significance of biblical truth so that uh, our lives are really being impacted by it, transformed by it. And uh, I was intrigued by Eric's response, and he, he took about an hour to say what I'm going to say in, in five seconds, but the, the gist of it was that we only understand uh, the application of a text when we understand the purpose of Scripture as a whole. Uh, scripture is the divine revelation of the drama of redemption. And application, then, is simply a matter of learning the script and finding uh, so that we understand our place in the story, our place on the stage. Well, the reason I bring that up is because this morning we're going to see Jesus speaking to the disciples and doing exactly that. Jesus once again telling them the story of, of redemption, what has been written in the book, what the, what the script is, and then showing them their place in this grand story of redemption, because they have a place. Uh, to be a Christian is to be brought into this magnificent uh, story, this, this magnificent purpose and plan of God to make everything new. And if you're a Christian, you've been brought into that story. Uh, it's, it's not just something that's happened outside of you. That's true, but you've now been brought into it. It's become your story and my story. And our, our uh, calling then in this life, and that's why we open the Bible, that's why we preach, is because we need to go back again and again to the script and, and remind ourselves of our place in this uh, drama of redemption. Because we do have a place, and, and Jesus gathers his disciples, he explains the story to them again, and rem, uh, reminds them of their divinely ordained role on this glorious stage of redemption. We're going to see th this morning that when Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, they not only discover the full truth of who he is, but they finally discover their own mission and calling. And the same will be true for us. As I said, uh, this takes place Easter Sunday evening. It's already been a big day. If you just remember, everything that's happened. Early in the morning, the women got up and went to the tomb. It was, uh, the stone was rolled away and Jesus' body wasn't there. Um, Mary Magdalene, believe, she, she met the gardener. She thought it was the gardener, but it was actually Jesus himself. Um, and throughout the day, there was these series of, 
a report starting to come back in that Jesus was actually alive. Simon uh, Peter said the Lord had appeared to him. Mary Magdalene said so. The women uh, told the disciples what the angels had said to them, that Jesus had promised that he would uh, be raised from the dead. And and then the two disciples from Emmaus uh, that are on the road to Emmaus, they show up and they tell their story, how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So it's, if you just imagine the the overwhelming, exhilarating, how could it possibly be, and yet it seems to be, and what in the world does it mean, all that's going on, and so that's what they're talking about. See, they still don't understand um, how Jesus was raised, they don't understand why he was raised, they don't understand what it means, they're just coming to the grips with the, the, the idea that it's true, that, it, that it's happened. Well, Jesus now come and explains all of it. Uh, the fact that, uh, not only that it happened, but why it matters. And so, uh, first of our point is just the revelation. Uh, the disciples are together, maybe in the same room where they had celebrated the Last Supper. There's probably the, the ten disciples there. We know uh, Thomas was not there because he was just not going to believe, right? He said, unless I can, I can see and He's just, he's just disillusioned. He's not, he's not there. Uh, Judas Iscariot obviously is not there. The ten are. And then the women and then other disciples who had attached themselves to Jesus. And they're talking about these things. Trying to make sense of it. Trying to understand it. And we also know that they are there in fear. John tells us that they had the door locked for fear of the Jews. The Jews had just put Jesus to death. And, and uh, they... They're afraid that maybe the Jews will come after them. And so all these emotions, confusion, uh, excitement, fear. And then Jesus appears. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now, while that's a common greeting in the day, we say hi. Uh, in in the Jesus' day, people would say shalom, uh, peace. Uh, but, but this is just not a, your everyday sort of casual, hey guys, uh, Jesus is, is um, gladly speaking to them uh, the gospel peace, uh, the fact that he has accomplished peace between sinful God, sinful man and a holy God. Jesus has, has accomplished peace, and now he's, he's proclaiming that peace, all the goodness and favor and kindness and love of a heavenly father. Jesus says to people just like you and me, peace to you, peace to you. Aren't you glad he says to you? That peace hasn't just been accomplished in a generic general sense, but that you individual people can, can experience that peace through Jesus Christ. John had told, uh, Jesus had told his disciples uh, before he went to the cross that this, is, this was going to be his gift to them. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And yet when Jesus comes, that's exactly what he finds, isn't it? He finds that they are troubled and they're afraid. And he... And he uh, he rebukes them again. Notice verse 37. They're not experiencing peace. They were startled and frightened and thought they, thought they saw a spirit. Why are they terrified? You'd think they would be overwhelmed with joy. Well, um, they'd never seen a person just show up in a room before. 
They thought Jesus was a spirit, that he was a ghost. They believed in such things. And um, you can imagine them shrinking back with fright. Maybe some of the women screamed. Maybe some of the men did too. It's just unnatural. It's, it's frightening. Uh, one commentator called this the natural response to the supernatural. You'll see this happening whenever people meet angels or, uh, or, or something from the supernatural realm. Well, Jesus doesn't smile and chuckle and say, oh, you silly people. He doesn't think it's natural at all. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Have you noticed how much admonishing and rebuking has been taking place in the Easter story? At every step, really, uh, the, angel, the, the, the angels meet the women and, and they rebuke them at the tomb. What do you, why are you seeking the, the living among the dead? He's, he's not here. Don't, don't you remember what he told you? It's, a, it's an admonishment. It's a rebuke. Uh, Jesus to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, why are you so sad? Don't you remember what was, what's written in the scriptures? Why are you so slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets talked about? And now we have the same thing here. It's, it's another admonishment, another rebuke. Why is there so much rebuking going on when, it, uh, when, when this should just be a celebration? Well, the rebuking is going on, you see, because they, they have their Bible. They have the text. And you see, uh, Jesus expects them to believe the Bible. He expects them to believe what God has said. Jesus challenges what we would uh, consider normal. Normal fear, normal anxiety, normal confusion. And Jesus challenges it. Remember the, uh, the disciples when they're in the boat. Jesus asks these questions that on the one hand seem so obvious, they're, it's nearly rhetorical. But, but he uses them to, to just reveal our lack of faith. And so they're going across the lake and Jesus is taking a nap and then the winds pick up and the waves are crashing into the boat and the boat is filling with water and the disciples panic and they say, Jesus, don't you care? Master, don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and then he rebukes the disciples and he, and he says, why are you so afraid? And the disciples might have thought to themselves, uh, because we're all going to drown? Because the boat's sinking? There's, Lord, there's water in the boat. They don't, they don't float like this. What, what do you mean? Why are, why are we afraid? It's the middle of the night. We're in the middle of the sea and there are waves coming into the boat. Jesus said, have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? And he says the same thing here, you see. Why, why are you so troubled? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Well, because the last time we saw you, you were dead. Because we've never seen anyone just appear in a room through a locked door. That's troubling. That's frightening. Because we haven't slept for three days and our nerves are shot and it's all so confusing. And Jesus just doesn't accept it. He, he lovingly but, but truly chides them for their lack of faith. You see, in Jesus' mind, it's not okay to be troubled simply because we don't believe what he said. 
Unbelief is not natural. Unbelief is not normal. It's not okay. Not when he's told us what is going to happen. Not when he's, when he's told us everything we need to know for faith and life. So he chides them. But the grace of God does extend to our weakness. Aren't you thankful for that? I am. And Jesus, in his grace, now gives them evidences. Verses 39 through 43. See my hands and my feet, Jesus says. Now, at first glance, that seems strange. I don't think I could identify anybody from their hands or feet. But Jesus' hands and feet are unique, aren't they? There are nail marks in his hands and his feet. Uh, unique evidence that the resurrected body of Jesus Christ is the self-same body that was hanging there on that cross. The resurrected body of Jesus still bearing the scars and the marks. I think that's such a beautiful thing. Um, You know, one of the things I look forward to in heaven is is, um, having a, a glorified body that won't have the scars and the blemishes and the shortcomings uh, of this earthly body. Maybe, maybe you have that same experience where you're, just, you, you're looking forward. I mean, you look at yourself in the morning in the mirror and you say, one day you're going to be beautiful. <laughs> Isn't it going to be great to have a glorified body someday? Gee, do, you, do you know that Jesus might have the only scarred body in heaven? Where he is for all eternity willing to bear the marks of his love for us? I think that's, that's just magnificent. The evidence of his sacrifice. And any time we would like, we can worship our Savior and see those hands and those feet. Touch me and see, Jesus says. The Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones that you see that I have. And he invites their inspection. People have this, this crazy idea that Christianity is just a leap into the dark, a leap into the unknown. There's, there's no evidence. You leave your senses Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Christianity is exactly rooted in senses. Jesus uh, invites their inspection. Look, touch, does the same thing with Thomas. Christian faith is not a senseless faith. But it's rooted in physical realities that, that can be seen and touched and heard. And when John writes his first epistle, 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, he says, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that we proclaim to you. Scientists will speak very confidently about things they've never seen, like quarks and dark matter. And then ridicule Christians for believing in something that is truly, absolutely, evidentially seen and touched and handled, the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Don't ever think that faith is leaving of the senses. Jesus gives one final proof. Is there anything here to eat? And he takes the broiled fish and he eats it in their presence. It is a real material body. It is a material body that has unique uh, attributes. It is not bound to time and space the way our material bodies are. Jesus can appear and disappear. He can enter into a, into a room without going through the door. There are, um, it's a body not bound as our bodies are in the, in the dimensions in which we live, but it is a material, real body. It's a glimpse into our glorified bodies. 
And it's evidence, you see, that death really has been defeated. This isn't a sleight of hand. Jesus took on death straight up in his body and destroyed it. Immortality really has come to mortals, to mortal men in Jesus Christ. It's incredible. This is the first fruit, you see, of a new heaven and a new earth. This is evidence that everything actually is being made new. That there's a place where there is no more death and no more crying and no more pain. If you just look at this story, you can ask yourself, what more evidence could Jesus have given to them? What more evidence could he have provided? Everything we need for confident faith in these things Jesus has given. But notice, evidence is still not understanding. They now are convinced that Jesus in his own body has been raised from the dead. They still don't understand exactly what it means and what its significance is for them. And so the explanation. Notice in verse 44 and following, Jesus once again goes right back to Scripture. We've seen this before uh, time and again, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But you see, they, they're rejoicing. Jesus is alive but they still don't understand the script. Imagine a people participating in a play, but uh, they're, they're reading from the wrong script. I only uh, was in one play in my life at, at uh, Dort, my senior year, uh, Romeo and Juliet, and there was a lot of practice. And uh, you needed to know the script. There were cues all over the place, and people had to know where they were and what they were supposed to do and when they were supposed to speak, and, and it was very important. Well, imagine... Uh, no practice, and people are reading from the wrong script, and they just show up and find themselves in this confusing, sometimes frightening series of events. Uh, they thought they were in Little Women, and they end up in Les Mis, and they, they completely, well, how does this work? Um, that's the disciples' experience. They, it had been going along fairly well. But you see, they're tracking the wrong story. They're reading the wrong script. Their script reads, uh, a Jewish man uh, takes the, uh, the Jewish throne because he's the Jewish Messiah, and he, um, he establishes Jewish reign and rule in all the Old Testament practices, and the, the Levitical priesthood is restored to its full strength, and everything is the way Moses said it should be. That's their script. And it's going to last forever because this is the son of David and his throne, the Old Testament says, is a throne that's going to last forever. That's why they're always arguing about cabinet positions. Well, then the Messiah is crucified. That is not in their script. Their Messiah doesn't get crucified. And then he's raised again from the dead, which is wonderful. But what does it mean? Well, Jesus leads them through the script. And notice every, when he rebukes them, he says, you know, what has to be fulfilled is all that is written in the scriptures. They believed in some of what was written in the scriptures. Jesus said, it all has to be fulfilled. And so he reminds him, 44, these are my words I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written. 
and went on to remind them of the story. Thus it is written that in the mouths of the prophets and in David, the Psalms, uh, in, in the uh, acts of redemption that you find in the, in the Old Testament, in the prophecies, in the ceremonial laws, in the historical narrative, Jesus has been telling the story of redemption. And not just his death, which we looked at last time, but his resurrection. Remember, he talks about the sign of Jonah. Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man is going to give that sign. And Psalm 16, you will not abandon my um, soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. A prophecy about Jesus' resurrection. And so Jesus just like opens it up again. You see, they'd missed those parts. They didn't realize that Jesus was fulfilling those things. So Jesus once again explains from the pages of Scripture what it all means. You see, because that's what the Bible does. The Bible doesn't just give facts. The Bible doesn't just say Jesus died, Jesus raised, was raised to life. The Bible says that Jesus was, um, he was killed and, and put to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. It's not just fact, it's fact interpreted. So now suddenly we understand what it means for us and and to us. And and so you see the the musts of the text. Jesus will always say the Son of Man must. He must suffer at the hands of the chief priests. He must be put to death. He must rise from the dead. And those musts you see are, that's because that's the divine plan of redemption. And so in order for the world to be redeemed, Jesus has to live the way that he lived and he has to die the way that he died. He has to be raised the way he was raised. He has to ascend the way he ascended and and he's going to come again as he said because that's what the scriptures have said. He's not freestyling in his ministry, is he? He says, I say only what the Father gives me to say. I do only what the Father tells me to do. He's following the script. Why? Because the redemption of the world depends upon it. Your salvation and my salvation depends upon it. And so Jesus explains the scriptures. And now they can finally understand. He opens their minds to understand the scripture, it's such a beautiful work of the spirit. When, when these things suddenly make sense and they become real, and it's not just the things that had happened a long time ago, but you get a sense when the spirit is at work that, that this matters for you, that you need to do something with this. This has implications for you. The Bible says that the unnatural man, the, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They are spiritual things, and, and they can't be understood by an unspiritual person, a person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But when the Spirit comes, well, then suddenly there's understanding, and it's not full understanding. It's, it, you you got to study, and you got to continue to learn and grow, but, but you're learning things that make sense more and more, and you're growing because you're taking those things, and you're beginning to incorporate them into your life. That's what God does when he saves people. He gives spiritual understanding. And, and these truths about God and Christ and eternal life, it all starts to make sense. And so you see, now with their Bibles open and with their understanding given to them, now the disciples are ready to take their place on the stage. Now they know their role. Now they know their place. Now they know their lines. 
Because notice what Jesus does, and we'll wrap with this, the application. Jesus says that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer and to be raised from the dead, and, verse 47, that repentance of, uh, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. There's a profound thought here. It is not just necessary because of Scripture that Jesus die. It is necessary. But it's, it's not only necessary that He die, and it's not only necessary that He die and be raised again. In the very same way, Jesus says, Scripture says, it is necessary that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed to all nations. In other words, that the disciples' role is as much a part of the redemptive plan and purpose of God as Jesus' death and resurrection. Riken says the Bible teaches three great redemptive acts in history. The cross, the resurrection, and the missionary work of Christ through the church. I don't think we sense the weight of our calling as the church to witness. I don't think we sense that we must because it's the script. It's how redemption is accomplished and applied. See, the Apostle Paul got that. That the, the gospel is the good news of what has happened outside of us in Jesus Christ for us. But, but that will do no good to anyone unless they hear it. It needs to be proclaimed. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Paul asked the question, well, how, how will they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching to them? The proclamation of the gospel is a critical part of the redemptive plan and purpose of God. You did not come to faith without someone telling you the truth about Jesus. You see, the script doesn't stop when Jesus rises from the dead. It doesn't stop even when Jesus ascends to heaven. You have the book of Acts where the script continues and, and Jesus continues his work through the missionary activity of the church and begins gathering the nation and the news goes out from Jerusalem and spreads and spreads and spreads. And we're the, we're the evidence of that. And so, you see, Jesus says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses. And they are uniquely the witnesses, of course, but they're the eyewitnesses. And they've written what they saw and what they touched and what they heard. And, and they tell us what it means. And if you read your New Testament, uh, you'll just be surprised how they imitate Jesus. And they'll say, uh, the scriptures say, and thus it is written, they, they, that appears throughout your New Testament. Paul does it in Romans 10. The scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You say they, they've learned the message and they've learned the importance of, of following the script. And part of that script then is that they need to take their place and, and announce and proclaim this good news. God really has come to earth. A savior really has been born. Redemption has been accomplished. A sacrifice was made. Sinners are now welcomed and invited to come to God, confessing their sin, repenting, and believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, a, that is, that is an awesome message.
That we do not have to suffer the fate that we deserve because of Adam and because of our own sin, but we can receive all the reward of Jesus Christ in his perfection and his righteousness as we confess our sin and humble ourselves and call upon the name of the Lord in Jesus Christ. And, 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 and in that, you see, not just to be forgiven, not just God is now nice to you, but to be drawn into the story of redemption and so that the destiny of Jesus Christ is your destiny. Where you reign with him forever, where you are bound to him as his bride, intimacy, glory, joy, pleasures forevermore. That is a very good future. That's your future and my future as we believe in Christ Jesus, as we follow the script. You see, friends, we've been caught up in this glorious thing. But everyone who came to faith testified. The thief on the cross testified. He rebuked his friend. Don't you know who you're talking to? Don't you know this man has done nothing wrong? Don't you know, don't you fear God? Have you ever had those conversations with the people at work? The Roman centurion stood there, a pagan man in the midst of a pagan world, and he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Joseph of Arimathea threw aside his fear of his colleagues and was willing to risk his reputation, his future, his, his, his financial status, all of it as he went and took that body of Jesus Christ down from the cross because he loved him. Everyone who wakes up witnesses to the glory of Jesus. Dominic Smart, uh, a pastor, preached a message on this. He just asked his congregation, what, are we, what were we made for? And his answer is that we were made for worship. We're made to magnify God, to reflect back to God the radiance of his worth. And we're going to do that forever. And then he asks this question. Well, if that's what we're made for, why are we still here? Because we're going to worship God much better in heaven, in a new heaven and a new earth, with perfected hearts and, and minds and souls and bodies. So why are we still here? And the answer is because God has a purpose. He's got a mission for us here. We've got a job to do. We've got a role to play, to witness. And we do that by casting ourselves on Christ like the thief on the cross. We do that by publicly aligning ourselves with Christ in the midst of a, of a, a scornful, shaming world like Joseph of Arimathea. We, we let people know we love Jesus. We witness by telling others the truth about Jesus. We witness by calling others to come to hear the proclamation of the gospel. You see, that's our calling. That's our role as the church. Friend, to be a Christian is to be caught up into something so magnificent, this great drama of redemption. You've become part of the story. Your life is hid now with Christ in God. And that means that your mundane life... Your little life that no one will know about in, in a few years, a few decades. That life has eternal significance. You understand that. As everyone has their part to play, one of the things you learn if, if you're in theater is that everyone has their own role. Everybody can't be the lead actor. We have a lead actor. His name is Jesus. It's not you. It's not me. Some of us think we're in our own play. We're not. We're in his play. So that's good news. We have a lead actor, but, and everybody has their part to play. What's yours? As a young person, as a child, you see, you have a part to play, boys and girls. 
as you honor your, your mom and your dad, as you obey them, as you, as you love Jesus and you bless other people, boys and girls, you are, you are acting out your part in this glorious drama of redemption. And as husbands and wives love each other, and as, as people live out in the workplace for the glory of God, we're playing our, our, our part. We're living as the church in this world, and we're looking forward then together with eager expectation for the final act, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. God is so kind to us. He's called us to faithfully live on this glorious stage to play our part, and then he reminds us over and over, right, to keep the script. That's why we have Sundays. God gave us a Sunday so that we can come together and we, we have to rehearse our lines because we forget our lines and we forget exactly what we were supposed to do and, and who we are and what's the story all about and how does it end and where are we now in, in the story. And Sunday after Sunday, we get to hear it's, there's this great drama that you've been caught into. God's great redemption of everything, including you in Jesus Christ, if you've come to believe in him. And that our role today is to follow, pay attention to the script, to worship, to praise, and to wait as we witness. May God grant that you have a deeper sense of who you are and why you're here and what it looks like as you fill out, carry out your role in this glorious drama. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God in heaven, thank you for Jesus and thank you that Jesus Christ came to us, not just to a lost world, but to lost people, to us. And he came preaching, proclaiming peace. And he came to let us know that though we have forsaken God and we're by nature objects of wrath, that by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, a way has been opened where sinners can be cleansed and pardoned and adopted and robed in righteousness. Sinners can be sanctified more and more by the Holy Spirit as you make us fit for a new heaven and a new earth. And that we have this magnificent role to play, Lord, in, in your divine plan of redemption and your sovereign saving purpose to follow Christ, to know the script, and to witness, to witness to a lost and dying world, to witness to people who are utterly lost and confused, people who are just being devastated by the lies of the devil all around us. And lives and families are being ripped to pieces by sin. And children suffer. And Jesus, you call us to proclaim this message to a lost, hurting, dying world. Because it is the way that you save sinners. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to get a sense of the glory of our calling, that we have a role to play. And Lord, that all the fear and the anxiety we might feel would disappear as we, as we take your word to heart and actually believe it. And that we don't care about the, the scorn of the world. We love Jesus, and we're convinced that he is still saving lost people. 
And Father, if there be any even here this morning who to this point do not know that Jesus this way, I pray, Lord, that you'd give them the faith to see, open their eyes to understand the scriptures, that they see what Jesus is for them and come to believe in him. Father, thank you that you're going to carry out this work until it's complete, and then we will see our Savior. May that day come soon. Amen.